So good evening, everyone. Our wonderful Sangha meeting again for some Dharma reflections. Tonight, I chose a topic to discuss that I actually haven't talked about before. And it was really coming up for me and has come up for me quite a bit during intensive practice. So I wanted to investigate it more and to share it with you all. And the concept is conceit or mana. It's considered in the Abhidhamma, the Buddha psychology, to be one of the latent torments, one of the latent tendencies. It is, uh, in many cases, an unconscious tendency, an unconscious um, fact of human existence that uh, needs to be uprooted. Interesting about mana or conceit is that we can relax around it because it's considered to be the very last thing that we uproot before full enlightenment. (laughs) What does that mean? That we could give ourselves a break when we see it, right? And as Joseph was saying uh, earlier, I I crowdsourced this talk with all the teachers and staff, so. (laughs) (laughs) Joseph was saying that he really loves when he sees conceit because he feels like he's working on full arhatship. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we're definitely um, banking in the full arhatship Uh, bucket when we're working on conceit. So what does conceit mean? What is this latent torment according to uh, Buddhist psychology? So some of the um, some of the translations of the word mana are the first one is conceit it's often used pride Um, another one that I actually like quite a bit is measurement It's to measure yourself against another. And uh, I love the way they talk about it in the Abhidhamma. So the characteristic of mana or conceit or measurement is haughtiness. Haughtiness, which is the appearance or quality of being arrogantly superior and disdainfully conceited. Pride, hubris, vanity self-importance, pomposity, (laughs) condescension, disdain, contempt. So the characteristic of mana or conceit is that it's haughtiness. It has, and it, uh, its function is to self-praise, self-promotion, Self-exaltation, that's its function. I love this manifestation. The manifestation is desire to advertise oneself like a banner. (laughs) 
And that's someone who just took a selfie in the SDR. (laughs) 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 Who has a Facebook page in here? Do you ever advertise yourself like a banner? How did the Buddha anticipate Facebook? (laughs) (laughs) Self-promotion, self-exaltation. Desire to advertise self like a banner. Narcissism, vanglory is the manifestation. And the proximal cause. What is the proximal cause of this latent tendency of conceit? It's greed. And according to the uh, Abhidhamma, it should be considered as a form of lunacy. The Vasudhimaga has a similar um, definition. Its function is arrogance. It manifests as vain glory, gloriousness, vain gloriousness. So uh, the Buddha taught that there's actually three kinds of conceit or three kinds of measurement. You know, we often think of conceit as, well, I'm just better than that person but many of you probably know that this latent torment actually has three ways that it's manifested. It, ha- it is manifested as, I am better than they, her, or him. I'm better. I am worse than they, her, or him. Actually, measuring or mana is manifested as worse than and less than as well. And so interestingly, the Buddha also taught that mana, pride, and conceit is manifest as I am equal to they, her, or him. It can actually also be manifest in this feeling of equality. So we're, uh, so these statements are the latent torments of the threefold grasping. So... Um, Mana, conceit, or measurement is thought of as one of the unwholesome characteristics of the category of greed. You know, as I said, uh, it's a manifestation of greed. And there's three ways that greed manifests in us. And, you know, I'd like you to take all this in in your intuitive awareness, not in your conceptual mind. It's a lot to take in, a lot of concepts. So I'm going to speak directly to all of your intuitive awarenesses so that it might be some way that you recognize when we're walking around the retreat. We might recognize, oh, that's better than, that's worse than, that's equal to. So I'm posing all of this to your intuitive awareness. So the first manifestation of the threefold grasping is the uh, thought... And remember, this is a latent torment. This is often an unconscious thought that we have. And that is produced by craving, clinging, the second noble truth. And that is, this is mine. This is mine, which arises through craving. It's mind-making. And the second is, this I am. And that arises through conceit or mana, 
which is eye-making. It's really rooted, deeply influences our identities in ways that we see it and ways that we don't see it. And then finally, this is myself, which is a latent tendency that arises through wrong view or dita, dita grasping. So these three manifestations of greed, mind-making, eye-making, and self-making. And like I said, or like the Buddha said, this is one of the very last things to be uprooted before enlightenment. So we're probably going to be seeing it for a while. I wanted to read this little story, a good example of conceit. When news of the impending death of a beloved and esteemed teacher swept through the village, well-wishers gathered to pay their last respects and honor him. Standing around the master's bedside, one of them, one by one, they sang his praises and extolled his virtues as he listened and smiled weakly. Such kindness you have shown us, said one devotee. Your depth of knowledge is astonishing, said another disciple. We'll never see anything like you again. We'll never be able to find a teacher with such elegance. The tributes to his wisdom and compassion and nobility continued until the master's wife noticed signs of restlessness and kindly asked his devotees to leave. Turning to her husband, she asked why he was disturbed, remarking upon all of the wonderful tributes that had showered him. Yes, it was all wonderful, he whispered. But did you notice that no one mentioned my humility? (laughs) (laughs) So we all have these identities that we just want to be seen. So um, I think it's so interesting that conceit or mana, this uh, eye-making, these identities, um, unconscious identities show up as, uh, the first one is superiority conceit. So this is when we just think we're uh, superior. And it's easy, easily spotted. I mean, that's the one that's probably the most um, common, the way that we think of conceit most commonly is that we're better than other people. And this can be arrogance, bragging, or we're proclaiming our excellence to the world. And boy, this is so prevalent. I mean, I don't know how many people that I have emailed since I have been here and said, well, I'm at IMS right now, you know, teaching part two of the three-month retreat. It's like, wow, Bonnie. (laughs) It's like the name dropping that we do. And I don't know, have any of you rehearsed what you're going to tell all your friends? (laughs) I bet you none of you have done that, have you? Like, I just finished the three-month or the six-week at IMS, the Mac Daddy of Mindfulness events. (laughs) And just notice it. It's something to really just laugh at, right? Wow. These identities that we're putting out there. 
And we, treat, we find ourselves rehearsing the conversations we'll have with our friends, our partners, our family when we get back. And especially the heroism that we had in overcoming and opening. <laughs> so that is superiority conceit. How else would it show up on retreat? Superiority. Maybe, you know, having someone next to us making a little bit too much noise. And the assumption is that our practice is perfect or something, right? To get so mad at someone else. And please know I'm talking about myself here. You know, this is something that we all do. And then there is inferiority conceit. And this is probably more familiar territory for many of us, right? This is what we, a lot of us see more commonly in ourselves. So this could be a a chronic sense of unworthiness. Uh, You know, it's so endemic in American culture and maybe in European culture and where some other uh, Canadian culture, I'm sure, uh, is driven by similar market forces. And, you know, having to buy a lot of stuff and get a lot of stuff is predicated on that we're just not good enough the way that we are. I mean, we have to accumulate and to get in order to just be moderately okay compared to other people. So this torment of feeling worse than others, not good enough, is a daily diet of our inferiority conceit. It gathers in the same places as superiority conceit, the body, mind, and appearances. And a long list of mistakes that we've made. Has anyone gone through their list of mistakes while on retreat? Like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I did that. And remember when I was in third grade and I did that? It's a tough one. Inferiority conceit. And then there's equality conceit. Now, what could equality conceit be? I think this one is pretty brilliant. And uh, that's when we share in the delusion that the conditions for everyone are absolutely the same. And so everyone should be treated exactly the same. So we might get mad at maybe accommodations that we have for some people because, you know, why do we have to have so many special needs foods? I mean, isn't everyone just supposed to eat what is being offered to them? Or it could be the differential instructions that people are getting depending on what's going on with them. Aren't we supposed to all be doing the same practice here? Coming in, you know, following the schedule. Coming in on time. Leaving on time. We're all equal, so we should all be under the same rules and regulations. Or equality conceit could be when we actually get happy or feel somehow um, acknowledged when other yogis are having a tough time 
like, look at everybody is sleepy in here. Everybody is fidgety. Everybody has multiple hindrances. So, you know, that's great because I'm just like everybody else. I'm glad everyone else is suffering as much as me. (laughs) I know none of you have had that, right? So equality conceit. Sometimes this can lead to disappointment, resignation, and cynicism. Like this is just too hard and you can look around and see that everyone is having a hard time. So in addition to these three levels of, of measuring, measuring better than, measuring worse than, and measuring equal to, the Buddha taught that there are four domains specifically where we do this uh, measurement, these four kinds of measurement. The first one is called jatimana, or measurement of birth. How does our birth, where we were born, or the circumstances of our birth inform our identities? How could that inform our identities? having measurement by birth. In the Buddhist time, I guess it was about your birth into what caste you were born into and what latent tendencies or what expectations you had that were largely unconscious based on where you were born. Isn't that fascinating that the Buddha was thinking about this 2,600 years ago? He was thinking about Jatamana, the measurement of birth. And what might that look like today? You know, sitting on our cushion or walking around this place, just, um, you know, what impressions that we have of the people that we just can look around, the impressions that we have and the assumptions that we make of people who are sitting right next to us or right in front of us or right behind us. Maybe we were born into a famous family, or maybe we were born into a special town or city, or maybe we were born as U.S. citizens. You know, what rights and privileges does that bestow upon us that we don't even realize? What patriotism do we have? And then a measurement of birth That would be a measurement of birth of better than. What about a measurement of birth of less than? So I'm sure many of you saw the huge migration that's going on from Syria and other places in the East to Europe. And just the associated status of the people based on their birth that's going on right now a huge amount of assumptions of people's worth and their, and their, um, just what they deserve as far as even being free to travel. And how that assumptions of worth, of better than, worse than, worse than or equal to how that gets into people's skin. 
I wanted to uh, talk about one particularly dramatic form of um, birth mana, jati mana, that had a huge impact on how a lot of people understand themselves right now. It was called the doctrine of discovery. There might be some historians in the room. The doctrine of discovery. Papal bulls in the 15th century gave Christian explorers the right to claim lands that they discovered and lay claim to those lands for their Christian monarchs. Any land that was not inhabited by Christians was available to be discovered, claimed, and exploited. If the pagan inhabitants could, could, could be converted, they would be spared. If, if, but if not, they could be enslaved or killed. You know, when I point at this, not to trigger anyone at all, you know, I point at it as a way just to think about what the birth mana. And you know, one, one reason I talk about it is because a lot of us think that how we feel about ourselves and how we feel about our others is personal. We think it's personal and that we created it and that it's a product of our own ignorance and our own machinations and almost like we're deciding this. This is not personal. These are much bigger historical trends and social trends and cultural trends that have a huge impact on who we think that we are. So, you know, in a way, uh, we might get let off the hook on having these identities. And the Buddha is offering us a way to see clearly these identities and let go of these identities. So did you know that the US Supreme Court actually in 1823 actually made public international law the doctrine of discovery? They actually made it a legal doctrine so that if any indigenous people um, claimed their land, they could say, oh, we're inhabiting this based on the doctrine of discovery, so we own it. That's the first category of mana making is birth mana. I love the second one. This second one has my picture on it. It's panyamana, or knowledge conceit, educational conceit. I have been in many intensive practices and I'm sure even at the staff dining room table over lunch today, <laughs> I think I said something like, I'm a scientist so I can say that. <laughs> I think I actually did say that. Today I said that. So that is panyamana. 
It's uh, conceit or measuring based on knowledge, education, skills, panyamana. The conceit of the educated. Knowledge is an asset, you know. We should, I should be able to teach people what to do and how to be. I'm in the health field, so I should be able to tell people what to do with their spare time, how to have sex, what they should eat. I know what's good for people. I do. (laughs) So that's better than, I understand better, I'm smarter, and I work harder. So that's part of my panyamana. And then what about worse than? How many of you, oh, and, you know, it's interesting, the demographic of our wonderful sangha here. I feel so at home. (laughs) There are some highly educated people in this room. There are, we are pretty highly educated. The demographic of Western Buddhists, of Western Theravadan Buddhists. You know, we're a bunch of eggheads. (laughs) And then what about us who aren't eggheads? Those of us who have had brilliant insights into the Dhamma, and have done sutta steady, but haven't necessarily had the money or the time to do it through our Western academic or even Asian academic institutions. What of us who are in here and don't have fancy degrees? How many of you have thought, wow, you know, all of those eggheads, I don't know if they'll even listen to me. And, uh, you know, maybe a little chip on our shoulder, right? Like, they just think they are so cool. And I'm the one that actually has lived this experience. You know, other ways that we make ourselves special or different because we're less than in the panyamana, in the panyamana category. Or to think that educated people look down on me or to feel a sense of separation because I don't fit in here. I don't fit in here. Or, you know, to realize how much you might fit in because of your educational background in ways that other attributes that you have would make you separate. And then I love this one, the equal to mana. You know, no one deserves special treatment. They should have a... They should have a drawing to see who gets to see Joseph in interviews. (laughs) Everyone should be equal. Maybe we should rotate all around the teachers to see who gets to see the, you know, the the rock star teachers or something. (laughs) Like Brian. (laughs) So other ways that uh, equal to mana comes in around... Um, education. One that I see in my, in my school is that, you know, we all work hard. No one has advantage over another, so everyone should have equal access. And uh, there should be no special admissions for anyone. If you have the money and the grades, you should get in. Or how does it play out here on retreat? That might be an interesting thing for you to pose to your 
to awareness. And then there's the fourth domain of conceit, dhanamana, conceit of wealth. So the conceit of the rich is called the dhanamana. And we can see how that would play out on retreat. Those of us who maybe paid the donor amount to come on retreat and think that, you know, they should put maybe a, uh, a list of, you know, when you get upgraded to first class and they give you the little menu. <laughs> maybe there should be a menu in our little yogi rooms about what's potentially for breakfast. You know, I have heard many of us complain about maybe special treatment that big donors get at the retreat centers. It's something that we think about. You know, why did that person get to have that, whatever it was, right in the middle of our retreat? And uh, I've often said that I think that big donors and very rich people are actually have their own types of special needs. They're special needs yogis. And then what about worse than or poorer than? You know, that can make us awfully special too. Like, wow, I am so poor. I had to apply for a retreat, I mean a uh, scholarship, and my sangha actually had two bake sales to get me here. So I am very special. Or people know that I'm really poor. I'm wearing the same thing every day and I just don't fit in here. I am so unworthy to be here. Or I'm very special because there are so few of me here. So dana mana, conceit of having too much, too many resources, not enough resources. Or maybe what would be the conceit of um, equal to equal to mana, that maybe there should be a flat fee for everyone. Everyone has an opportunity to work. Everybody could get a job. Everybody can earn money if they do the right thing, if they get an education or get into a good trade, trade or union. So everyone should pay the exact same price and eat the exact same thing and have the exact same rooms. And then the one that is probably most common to us, the uh, conceit of appearance. How does the conceit of appearance manifest? If we're better than, what is considered better than looks, better than appearance? Tall, thin, healthy, strong, buffed, (laughs) six pack. (laughs) Attractive, straight hair, light skin. Tall, we were talking about this And tall is good up to a certain 
height for women. Over a certain height, it can be a detriment. It can be a worse than appearance, mana. And then what is worse than? Of course, we know what that is. Fat. I'm worse than. I'm chubbier than every other yogi in here. I'm short. I'm ugly. I have dark skin or curly hair. I'm guilty of all of that. And then equal to conceit. Even when you're, when you're with your own peer groups, you know, women that are of the same ethnicity and age. Oh, age is a huge one for appearances as well. Youth is huge. Youth is a huge um, mana. I'm young. I'm pretty. I totally notice it. Erin and I will go to the store. People will so follow her around. (laughs) She's young and cute. (laughs) It's okay. We have to surrender to the way things are. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to embarrass you. Anyway, so what do we do with all of this? So these are latent tendencies, highly unconscious and highly conscious, but this this is exactly what we're meant to work with. This is exactly how we uproot all of these assumptions of our I-ness and my-ness. These are our identities that are based on all of these things. So how do we work with these? How do we bring skillful means to these? So uh, one thing that I have been doing, that I have done, that's very helpful to me is I love to bow. I love to bow to the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And I remember very specifically the first time I bowed. It was in 1982, probably this very month in November, I was doing the month-long retreat at Kopan Monastery, and it was a Tibetan Buddhist center. And the Tibetans are good bowers, people who practice in the Tibetan tradition. We know that they're very good bowers. And it took me like three weeks, like, you know, I got there and I noticed everyone was bowing and doing these fancy bows. And after about three weeks, I said, okay, I'm going to give this a try. And it was so interesting. The first time I bowed, I could feel the assault on my, on my conceit. The assault on my, Americans don't bow. You know, it was really an excellent, an excellent look at uh, unconscious latent tendencies. And our dear friend Lila Kate Wheeler has this wonderful little passage about bowing. And the difference between a bow and a scrape. And for those of us who, you know, have inferiority complexes based on many of the things that the Buddha taught, we can be worried about, you know, whether we're scraping when we're bowing. And uh, Leela says this, A true bow is not a scrape. 
many on this path, both men and women, and they carry a legacy of too many years of scraping, cowering, and self-belittlement rooted in belief in their own unworthiness. The path to renouncing scraping can be long and liberating, a reclaiming of dignity and letting go of patterns of fear. Discriminating wisdom, which we are never encouraged to renounce, clearly understands the difference between a bow and a scrape. A true bow can be a radical act of love and freedom. As Suzuki Roshi put it, when you bow, there is no Buddha and there is no you. One complete bow takes place. That's all it is. This is nirvana. So bowing can be one way to just see a little bit more clearly this conceit, this conceit of I am better than, I am worse than, I am equal to. And then of course bringing mindfulness, that's what we're trying to do here. And it's great to recognize conceit whenever it pops up. You know, when you see it, it's, uh, you know, we can use that, we can use that reflection, Mara, I see you. I asked Joseph, what should people do when they see uh, conceit? You can imagine what he said, right? (coughs) (laughs) He says, remind them. And like you said, he loves to see conceit. He gets really happy when he sees it because he's, you know, putting, a, putting in the arhat bank. Putting in the arhat bank. So really getting rid of some of the deepest latent tendencies that we have. So just to recognize it completely. And to, because it is such a deep-seated latent tendency, and because it's the last thing to be uprooted, we can approach it, we can approach it as um, Annie so beautifully talked about last night with some kindness in our awareness. To open to it with kindness and clarity. And then... um, Another thing that we can do is, and actually this says this in the, in the suttas. Actually in one sutta, the Buddha says, Venerable Sir, oh this is beautiful, this is Rahula, the Buddha's son asking the Buddha about this. Venerable Sir, how should one know, how should one see so that in regard to this body with consciousness and regard to all external signs, eye-making, mind-making, and the underlying tendency to conceit no longer occur within? Any kind of form whatsoever, Rahula, whether past, future, or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, One sees all forms as it really is with correct wisdom thus. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. He offers that reflection. 
And I've heard many people actually will use that exact reflection when they're working on the cushion. They'll see something and just say to themselves the reflection, this is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. Just as a reminder as to drop that in, to see that. A lot of uh, yogis are working with their own brilliant mantras, their own brilliant reflections that they have made for themselves. I hope to uh, share some of those with my next Dharma talk, but you might think of what reflections. It's a way to make your intentions and resolves, to set your intentions and resolves in in a pretty consistent manner. You know, when you wake up, I resolve and my intention is to have continuous mindfulness all day. Or when you're sitting down uh, for a sitting meditation. You know, I resolve to be open to, open and relaxed to all the unfolding that there may be. As a way to uh, call up your own best qualities and to set your intention very specifically. And then one way to work with these latent uh, defilements, these latent tendencies is through right view and right understanding. The first two path factors, right view and right understanding. And I wanted to share with you specifically how uh, Gil Fransdahl wrote this little piece about right view. And I wanted to share it with you. I, I think I cut out all the parts that I, I won't read. It's a little bit long, but I just think it is so beautiful. So how do we bring right view to eyeing and myeing? And I will say before we start that, for him, right view is not about the what. I mean, we're all about the what, are we? What are we experiencing? You know, what are we becoming? Are we becoming an an enlightened person? Are we becoming part of the Arya Sangha? What are we becoming? And it really is about how. It's really about how we are doing what we are doing. Not about the what, about the how. So this is uh, Gill's Gill's reflections on right view and right understanding. The way that I would like to present the notion of right understanding is through a simple statement. That statement is that the means of practice should reflect the goal. The means of practice should reflect the goal. One aspect of the goal is to become peaceful, to attain a deep abiding sense of peace to be at peace in this world where we live in. For this means to reflect the goal means that there has to be peace in the practice. The practice itself should be peaceful. Peace, compassion, and joy are all the inner way that the goal of practice is experienced for someone who attains the goal. Subjectivity is marked by these inner qualities of peace, compassion, love, joy, and happiness. The practice should reflect that. That took me a long time to realize and understand. 
There were times when I strove, when I was greedy for some kind of attainment or some kind of result, or there was some kind of aversion to the kind of experience I was having. No matter what our practice might be, whether it is breath meditation, loving kindness, chanting a mantra, visualizations, right speech, washing dishes, working, or any activity we want to make a practice, we have to ask if it is reflecting the goal. One of the ways we can relate to practice is that we we can be content with the small steps of what we can do. Can there be some compassion, some love in relationship to that? My idea of the notion that the goal should be reflected in the means is a built-in safety mechanism for Dharma practice. You will not get in trouble if that is the case. You will not bury yourself in excessive excessive zeal or aversion or conceit or self-deprecation. How we are is more important than what we do in spiritual practice, in Dharma practice. It's nice that people find a lot of what's to do in their life, but I think that there is a certain kind of dominant culture neurosis that proclaims that there is a right what out there for you, the perfect career, the perfect relationship. There is a what out there and life is about finding the right what. There are some people who are blessed by never needing to find a what. What peace that would be. The wisely understand either consciously or unconsciously that life is about how, how they are. Wouldn't it be interesting if people ask instead, how do you do it? Or what attitude do you have towards what you do? How are you when you do what you do? So for some people, they understand that, and that is what their life is about. The what is not so important, but how they are in relationship to what they do is the important thing. I have known people who just shine, radiant people, for whom how is more important than what. I know some people who are extremely poor. I know one person in this area who is poor for this area, but I think of him as the richest person I know, because his life is about how. And then I want to end with this nice quote about conceit by Christina Feldman. The conceit of self, mana, is said to be the last of the great obstacles to full awakening. Conceit is an ingenious creation, at times masquerading as humility, empathy, or virtue. Conceit manifests in the feelings of being better than, worse than, and equal to another. Within these three dimensions of conceit are held the whole tormented world of comparing, evaluating, and judging that afflicts our hearts. Jealousy, resentment, fear, and low self-esteem spring from this deeply embedded pattern. Conceit perpetuates the dualities of self and other, the chasms that are at the root of the enormous alienation and suffering in our world. Our commitment to awakening asks us to 
Ask us to honestly explore the ways in which conceit manifests in our lives and to find a way to its end. Let's sit together for a minute. May all beings uproot the latent tendency of conceit through loving awareness. May any positive energies of our practice be dedicated to the happiness and awakening of all beings in all directions, especially ourselves. <laughs> 